Faith is believing in something you can't see, you can't feel, something that can't be proven. Then how do you know which is the right faith? I think that's a gut thing. I don't think about a right faith. I think about what resonates with me. I feel authentic. It brings me peace. I think there is no absolute truth in any religion. I think it's a matter of subjective experience. I kind of just trust my intuition, trust my gut. You just know. You just got to follow it. You just got to follow what you think is your faith. If faith is blind, then what makes one belief better or worse than any other? And if it's just a leap in the dark, why should any of us feel obligated to believe anything at all? My name is Shane Rosenthal. I was raised in a Jewish home, but became an atheist at a very young age. Later, as I began to question things, I ended up losing faith in my atheism and converted to Christianity. Since that time, I've never stopped asking questions, and I've spoken with authors and scholars from all over the world in order to explore the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Over the years, one thing I've concluded is this. We're all believers. But because there are so many conflicting ideas and worldviews out there, we just can't all be right. So how do we find the truth? On this podcast, we'll start by asking questions. I'm really just trying to figure out what I believe right now. Joining me for this episode of the Humble Skeptic Podcast is Carl Truman, who is professor of biblical and religious studies at Grove City College in Pennsylvania and host of the Mortification of Spin podcast. Dr. Truman is also the author of over a dozen books, including Luther on the Christian Life, The Creedal Imperative, and Reformation Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. For the purposes of this program, we'll be talking with him about his latest book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. So why don't you start off by telling our listeners why you decided to take on this important writing project? Sure. Well, the book is, uh, it started as a conversation between myself, Rod Dreher, senior editor at the American Conservative Magazine, and Justin Taylor at Crossway. Uh, Rod and Justin thought it would be a good idea for somebody to write a brief introduction to the thought of Philip Reef, who famously wrote and analyzed what he called the, the therapeutic culture, the book, The Triumph of the Therapeutic. And I agreed to, to have a look at that. And as I, as I read Reef and was starting to think about how to approach the subject, it became clear to me that a more interesting book would actually be applying Reef to contemporary cultural uh, situation. And so th- that was the origin of the book. And it came to focus on the question of how the sentence, I am a woman trapped in a man's body, has come to make sense. Yeah. What I wanted to unpack was what shifts take place in the broader culture? What shifts take place in our understanding of what it means to be human that mean that that sentence is not just plausible to you know, French deconstructionists, but actually makes sense to my neighbors, the man, the woman in the street? So that was the, the driving motivation for the book. You say that there are a lot of assumptions behind that phrase, you know, that I'm a man trapped in a woman's body. What are some of those assumptions? Well, most obvious one, of course, is that that my feelings are the most fundamental thing about who I actually am. Uh, in times past, if you'd said, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, I feel like a woman and therefore my body must be wrong, people would have responded by saying, no, no, it's it's your feelings that are wrong. We, we need to address what's going on inside your head and bring it into conformity with your body. The fact that transgenderism now is plausible would indicate that 
we no longer take bodily authority with the same seriousness that we once did. And in the book, I see that as part and parcel of a major change that's taken place over the last 300 years, whereby inner feelings, that inner space, that, that voice of nature within us has come to hold an authoritative position in how we think of ourselves, in what we consider to be our identity. How did those ideas come to be taken as normal in our day? Well, it's a a long and and, and somewhat convoluted story, and I certainly don't uh, make any claim to having told the exhaustive story in this book. But I think we can see a number of of key shifts. Uh, One of them takes place in the 18th and the early 19th century, where uh, the thoughts of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who has the idea that your man is born free and everywhere is in chains. It's essentially society that screws you up. What we need to do is return to that inner voice of nature with which we're born, and that's what makes us authentic. That's picked up by the poets, the artists, the musicians of what we now call the Romantic movement, who really saw getting to be at one with your inner feelings as part of what would make you a a balanced, well-rounded, moral human being. So we, we first of all see that the psychologizing of what it means to be the self, instead of, say, the medieval situation where, hey, I'm born the son of a peasant farmer. For me to be me is for me to learn how to fit into the external system into which I've been born. Right. We now have this idea that, no, for me to learn to be me is for me to learn how to express my inner desires and feelings outwardly. The second big move occurs with Sigmund Freud, where Freud certainly agrees with the romantics on the, the depth of human nature, that inner space. What Freud does is sexualize it, say, yes, we are our inner desires. And guess what? Our inner desires are primarily sexual. We live with the fruit of that every day now. When you think about, when you take a step back and think, it's very odd that we would define ourselves in terms of our sexual desires. Sex is really something we do. It's not something we, we actually are. But that's not the way society thinks anymore. When I, if I were to say to you, I've got a gay friend or a, a bi friend or I'm straight, I'm making a claim about identity that's perfectly coherent now because we tend to think that desire defines who we are. So that's the second move. Psychology, if you like, gets sexualized. And then the third big move is once you decide, once you've made that decision that identity is sexual, then politics, the way society is organized, the way we're expected to behave, politics has to address that. And so in the 20th century, uh, we find the the notion of political liberation becomes increasingly connected with notions of sexual liberation, breaking out from repressive sexual codes. We see the fruit of that in the 60s uh, and onwards, uh, right down to the present day. Now, obviously, there's always a, a difference between what elite thinkers think and how ordinary people operate. But when you think of pop culture, Pop culture, by and large, does what? It, it plays to our inner feelings. It plays to our interest in sex. Yeah. Uh, it presents those who attempt to corral sexual behavior as oppressive and tyrannical. So all of these ideas that are developed by you know, sophisticated intellectuals percolate down through the culture, through art, poetry, music, all of these things. Uh, there is a, a path, if you like, from Jean-Jacques Rousseau to... Ariana Grande, you know, there is a a track that one can trace between those two. Sometime at the beginning of last year, I had the opportunity to record some man-on-the-street interviews at Balboa Park in San Diego, and I'd like you to listen to some of these comments. There are people who have said, I, as a 45-year-old man, identify as a 
32-year-old, and I'd like my driver's license to reflect that. What do you think about age identity? I think it's false. I think people have to be realistic, and if you're a 55-year-old guy, you got to say I'm a 55-year-old guy. But should DMV recognize your gender identity? Yes. Why should one be the case and not the other? I don't know. I think, I don't even know how to answer that. Is it okay for me to identify as a female and then have the state recognize that on my driver's license? Uh, You know, I don't know. That's a tough one. Uh, Genetically, you're still technically male. If you feel like a chick and you want to wear a dress, I don't care. So go talk to Gary at the DMV. (laughs) (laughs) If you were Gary at the DMV, what would you say? Sure. Why not? You're not hurting me. Would you say that that's morphable to age? So I am a 54-year-old male, and I identify as a 17-year-old male. Can my driver's license reflect that? If you want to be an 8-year-old pony, then let's do it. I'll sign you up right now. There was a case in um, Belgium where a man who was 54 identified as a 43-year-old, and he wanted his driver's license to reflect that. Is that something that you'd be comfortable with? Hmm. Um, how much does that negatively affect me? It does negatively affect anyone. And if it doesn't, then, you know, what right is anyone to say that they don't? And who, who am I to say whether or not they're allowed to do something, especially if it's, it's making them feel good and make them, you know, have a more beautiful life and doesn't hurt anyone? I think by expanding yourself and being open to those ideas of exceptions rather than rules, you're opening up your ability to be more compassionate and empathetic towards other humans. And I think that's only a good thing. So what did you think of some of those responses? Fascinating. Absolutely confirmed the conclusions of my book. So pretty really gratifying <laughs> on that. I, although I don't use the word chick at any point in my book. Uh, but I, I think it's interesting uh, on a number of fronts. I mean, one, you get the, what, what clearly comes through is that, that Western libertarian individualism. Right. You know, who am I to say to somebody else? So that's a, a interesting, uh, element. Secondly, you get the inconsistency that I think it was uh, one of the women sort of acknowledges that why is the body authoritative for age, but not for gender? And she didn't know. She didn't know, uh, which shows that a lot of this stuff is run on emotion and taste rather than logical or rational consistency. Um, So those two aspects are are, are very powerful there. But again, you get this uh, very specious argument that, hey, it's not doing anybody any harm. But of course, it is doing harm. If you're a man and you you get arrested for something and you identify as a woman and you get sent to a woman's prison, man, you're like a kid in a candy store. Uh, It it jeopardizes there. It would jeopardize the well-being of female inmates. If you're a guy rugby player and you identify as a woman and start playing rugby against women's teams, and I'm I'm the faculty advisor to the Grove City College women's team, I would not let them take the the field with a man's team that identified as women because they'd be crushed. Right. It it would be a bloodbath. If if you identify as a woman and get access to women's bathrooms, that affects people. So this idea that... It doesn't affect me if we allow people to do this. That's complete nonsense. Uh, It affects parental rights. 
if a child identifies as uh, transgender at school, and I know this from experience from the, the school district used to live in, in Pennsylvania, uh, near Philadelphia, the school policy was if a child identifies as transgender, the teacher's not obliged to tell the parents. Wow. In other words, the teachers claim a right to know the child's true identity, but won't tell the true identity of the parents. It affects parental rights. When we start allowing children, even prepubescent children, to claim to be another gender and start prescribing them uh, uh, drugs that block puberty and mess around with the hormones, we're abusing their bodies. Right. So this, it's not the equivalent, transgenderism is not the equivalent to me saying, you know, I want to wear a canary yellow suit. Right. You know, that doesn't affect anyone. It may make me look ridiculous, but it, it doesn't affect anyone. This idea that legally recognizing the fact that a man claims to be a woman Legally recognizing that doesn't have any social impact on the rest of us is arrant nonsense, arrant nonsense. Furthermore, I mean, the, the person who is a biological male whose driver's license says he is female, I mean, won't he get different treatment at the hospital? The list goes on. Yeah. I mean, the list goes on. It's, it's remarkable how the mythology that we are the sovereigns of our own identity uh, has gripped the imagination. And we see it, incidentally, way back in Rousseau. You know, Rousseau's premise is man is born free and everywhere is in chains. I say to the students when I teach Rousseau at Grove City College, never did a philosopher make a more stupid and self-evidently <laughs> untrue statement. Sadly, falsity has never been a bar to something being believed and becoming influential. But of all species on the face of the planet, man is not born free. If you were to take a newborn baby out of a hospital and just put it at the side of the road it's going to die very, very quickly. Man is unusually dependent upon other members of his or her species for survival for an unusually long time. Uh, I used to breed hamsters as a kid. Hamsters are not as dependent upon their parents right. as human beings are. Hamsters are born more free than human beings are. And that's the root. This idea that we're autonomous, independent creatures is... It's a tragically wrong premise from which a whole heap of tragically wrong ideologies have been deduced. You mentioned Philip Reef in your opening comments. Tell our listeners who he was and why you think that he can help us understand the world we currently find ourselves in. Reef is fascinating. I mean, he's uh, an American, I would say, a sort of psychological sociologist. He was interested in the psychology of societies. He was one of the, the key figures in the, the publication of the American edition of the works of Sigmund Freud. So mm. he's, he's very influenced by certain aspects of Freud. So he was an interesting figure. And he wrote this book, The Triumph of the Therapeutic, and, and then a, a series of follow-ups where he sees the difference between today and, say, the past as what he would call this sort of therapeutic shift. That in the past, you say, go back to the Middle Ages, you say that the role of the therapists then was to bring you to terms with the outside world, uh, to explain to you how the outside world worked and to help you fit into it. So a medieval priest, for example, giving you the theological framework for understanding the world. Uh, teachers, the job of education was not to cosset you and to, to help you express yourself. Uh, the job of the teacher was really to train you to be a member of this bigger reality. Yeah, to help you to conform, yeah. Yeah, learning the rules of the game that was already established when you arrived. Right. Reef sees the modern age as 
are shaped by a different kind of therapy, where this kind of therapy is really designed, we might say, to make the world conform to you. Yeah. Most obvious example might be the sort of child-centered learning, when the idea is the teacher's there really to get out of the child's way so the child can, can grow into the person they already are inwardly. Reef also saw it in even in the ways that churches present themselves. Here's a great statement. I'm not quoting exactly, but it's something to the effect of, you know, in olden days, people went did not go to church to be made to feel happy. Hmm. They went to have their misery explained to them. And it's a rather dark, brooding sort of saying, but it captures the idea. I was saying to students just this morning in class, if, if you read the uh, Book of Common Prayer's funeral liturgy, uh, the funeral liturgy there is really, it's not a celebration of life as we have today, right? but it's very much reminding those left behind that life is nasty, brutish, and short, and there is a judgment at the end of it. So Reef sees this switch from human beings being outwardly directed and therefore having to learn the rules of the outward game to being inwardly directed and therefore needing to be protected from what is outward or even have what is outward changed in order to make them feel good about themselves. So he's a remarkably fertile thinker. He was Jewish. I don't think he had any personal religious commitments himself, Right. but he saw the importance of religion as, as grounding a stable, outwardly directed society. And, and he sees the death of religion as allowing everything to fold inwards and become therapeutic. Yeah. In your book, you say that he lamented that the new realities he was describing signified the death of culture rather than the birth pangs of a liberated utopia. Why do you think he thought of it that way? His Freudianism comes out here, and, and actually, this is a point at which I personally think Freud is, is pretty compelling, that culture is the result of not being allowed to do certain things, particularly certain sexual things. So Freud, in his book, Civilization, It's Discontent, says, you know, the, the only way that we have civilization is if we have sexual taboos to curb our darkest instincts. And Reef thought Freud was correct. And I think Freud is basically correct as well. So when Reef saw in the, the latter part of the 20th and a part of the 21st century, that culture was being increasingly defined by the demolition of sexual taboos. And these elites who are pitted against the past and against past culture, he really saw the emergence of something new, not something that stood in continuity with the past, but something that broke with the past and something that precisely because it was allowing anything to go was itself incredibly unstable and, uh, and volatile. Toward the uh, end of your introduction, you wrote something that I thought was really provocative. You said that your goal was to, quote, help the reader see that the debates about sexuality that increasingly dominate our public square need to be said in a much broader and deeper context than we typically acknowledge, and that all of us, to some extent, are implicated. What did you mean by that when you said that all of us are, to some extent, implicated? Well, I think the, the the sort of the general point I'm trying to make there is that the sexual revolution is linked to this notion of expressive individualism, which is essentially what Rousseau is starting to articulate, is picked up by the romantics, etc., where we find our authentic identity in being able to be outwardly that which we feel we are inwardly. Uh, the complicating factor for us is that expressive individualism is the air that we breathe, right? Particularly in the West now, I wouldn't extrapolate to all parts of the globe, but the Western way of thinking is that we are sovereigns. We do choose an awful lot of the things that give us our identity. And even conservative Christians, 
you know, we, we might want to stand in, in the temple and say, you know, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not an expressive individualist yeah. like this transgender person over there. But we choose the church we go to. Uh, by and large, we choose it because it scratches where we itch. We fool ourselves if we think that expressive individualism is the world's problem, not the church's problem. I think we all relate to the world as consumers, and therefore we all relate to the world at some level as, as expressive individuals. Yeah, to some extent, Arminianism became more plausible here in this country where we had the, the banner, you know, we serve no sovereigns here. There's something about our democratic spirit and our, our love of autonomy that sort of makes all that plausible, doesn't it? It does. And, and I, don't, I would want to qualify it by saying, you know, I don't think everything about expressive individualism is bad. Right. I have no nostalgic feelings about wanting to be born in feudal Japan or maybe, <laughs> you know, or maybe if I'd been a samurai, feudal Japan would have been okay. But yeah, I, I have no nostalgic feelings about wanting to be born in, in, a, in a strongly corporatist kind of society. But I do think we need to be aware of, yeah, that democratic freedom that means so much, particularly to Americans, but to an awful lot of Westerners in general, means that we will tilt towards an expressive individualism that, that is not an unmixed blessing in a lot of ways. You cited a thinker in one of your footnotes who used the illustration of dance as a way of thinking about some of those important cultural shifts. Can you talk about that for a minute? Because I think it might be a helpful way for our listeners to grasp what's happened over time. Yeah, it's actually, I think it's Roger Scruton, the, the late yeah. and rather brilliant you know, English philosopher to whom I'm incredibly indebted on a whole host of fronts. Roger Scruton has this essay on dancing and he, he makes an interesting point that all of us have seen or had to see because our wives made us watch them. <laughs> Uh, the Jane Austen dramas on TV. Right. And usually in a Jane Austen drama, there's at least one dance scene. And what's interesting about dances in, I suppose, what would have been Georgian England is how structured they are. Right. And each individual has to know the dance steps and has to fit their dance steps to coordinate with everybody else. And the point Scruton makes there is the individual only has meaning to the extent that he or she is able to coordinate and obey the rules of the game that everybody else is obeying. Yeah, there's that conformity idea again. Yes. If you don't conform, you get your feet stepped on. <laughs> yeah, you, you just look like an idiot. Yeah. You don't fit in at all. Jump ahead a couple, you know, 150, 160 years, Saturday night fever, and watch, you know, John Travolta doing his thing on the dance floor. The interesting thing there is that John Travolta finds his individuality, not by coordinating with a larger group. Yeah. He doesn't find his meaning in a larger group. He finds his meaning by expressing in his outward dance moves exactly what he feels inside. He's, we might say he's strutting his stuff or he's showing off his wares. On one level, it seems trivial, just different dance styles. On another level, it reflects a completely different view of how human beings, we might say, authenticate themselves. Yeah. Do they authenticate themselves by coordinating with the crowd, or do they authenticate themselves by expressing outwardly that which they as an individual feel inwardly? Though you spend a lot of time outlining the history of ideas related to your thesis, you also say that ideas are only part of the story. What else would you say contributes to the rise of the modern self? Well, a whole host of things. I mean, pop culture clearly has to play a, a significant part. And you know, we've already talked about John Travolta, and, and sort of pop music plays into that cult of the of the expressive individual. I would say um, you know, one of the key things that I highlight in one of the chapters is the role of pornography. 
pornography in Christian circles, we often tend to think of it as an evil because it promotes lust or it promotes uh, the objectification and exploitation of women or of, indeed of men. And, and both of those things are true. But I would also argue that pornography promotes a particular philosophy of what it means to be a human person. Hmm. The other person exists for my personal pleasure. The other person is merely instrumental to my pleasure. On the day I got married, when I turned around and saw my wife walking down the aisle, if it had been another woman, equally beautiful, equally delightful, et cetera, et cetera, it wouldn't have done because I wasn't in love with a body. I was in love with a person. And what pornography does is, is presses on us the idea that the meaning of your life is you, the meaning of your life is sexual pleasure, the meaning of everybody else is how they either get out of your way or enable you to enjoy sexual pleasure. So pornography would be uh, another example, I would say, of how the philosophy of expressive individualism finds a, a quiet way of infiltrating the way people imagine the world without them even knowing it. Commercials. You know, again, Christians are very worried often about uh, access to internet pornography, and rightly so. Commercials preach a not dissimilar philosophy of what it means to be a human person. Mm. You can be satisfied by buying these things that satisfy your desires. I think I still have it in my head. Uh, hold a pickle, hold a lettuce, special order at your service. We'll do anything for you to have it your way. There you go. There you go. <laughs> It just sticks in your head, even from way back from the 70s. <laughs> I remember my, my dad, he's, he's been dead some years now. When my dad visited America, the thing that drove him crazy was at restaurants. There was so much choice. Huh. You know, the, the waiter would want to know fries, yeah. what soup. And dad would say, look, just bring me a meal. You know, he, he really <laughs> felt the burden of consumerism and expressive individualism. You also say that technology itself makes it easier for us to think that reality is something we can manipulate. Yeah. Well, we, we even have that phrase, virtual reality. But, but when you think of, of times past, a lot of things had authority over us there, which no longer have authority. I'm an immigrant. My accent gives me away. 200 years ago, I might have said goodbye to my parents when I left to come to America, knowing I was never going to see them again. Geography had huge authority. That's yeah. slowly been attenuated by the telegraph, the locomotive, the telephone, the car, the aeroplane, the internet. Uh, I can speak to my mum every, every week if I want now. I can fly home with great ease. Technology has, has reinforced this idea that, yes, the world is whatever we care to make it. So you talk in your book about the uh, 2015 Obergefell versus Hodges U.S. Supreme Court decision. Uh, what was that case about and how did the court end up ruling? Uh, the case is the famous gay marriage case, and the the, the court ruled uh, by a 5-4 uh, majority in favor of finding a right to gay marriage within the Constitution and therefore granting federal recognition to gay marriage. Some people say it legalized gay marriage. Gay marriage was not illegal. It just wasn't recognized by the federal government, I think, would be a more, more accurate way of putting it. So that's the the moment at which gay marriage becomes a, a federally recognized and indeed sort of legally protected institution. And you say that uh, for those in the LGBTQ movement, quote, it's not enough that one can buy a wedding cake somewhere in town, but that one must be able to buy a cake affirming same-sex marriage from every baker in town. Yeah. What, in your opinion, is the reason for this? Well, again, this comes down to, I think, uh, a misunderstanding that a lot of Christians have about sexual politics. So we tend to think that the question of sexual politics is about behavior, 
that the sexual revolution was really about expanding, using the term, expanding the canon of sexual behavior that society finds acceptable. If we go back to what I said earlier about Freud and co, where, where sex becomes identity, in actual fact, a gay couple, they don't think of, of their gayness as a set of activities. They think of it as an identity. So when you go into a cake baker and ask a, a cake baker, you know, bake me a cake for my gay wedding, and, and the cake baker says, no, I'll bake you a cake for anything else, but I won't bake it for your wedding on the grounds that I have religious and moral objections to what you're doing. The cake baker thinks he's objecting to a behavior. He thinks he's expressing uh, disapproval of behavior. What the gay couple hear is a denial of their identity. Yeah. Pretty much the equivalent, if you like, of in the 1950s. You know, yeah, we'll, we'll tolerate African-Americans, uh, but you've got to sit at the back of the bus yeah. or you've got to use that restroom over there, not the one that we keep over here for the white customers. So the issue of, of sexual politics is not one of, we might say, tolerance. A lot of Christians have thought, yeah, well, we could tolerate this, but that's not what's at stake. What's really at stake is having an identity recognized as legitimate by society as a whole. It's not tolerance, but equality that is the question. And that's why to people outside the Christian community, you know, not baking the cake, you know, just bake the cake, man. It, it seems a simple thing to do. And why on the inside of the Christian community, we can't do that because it contradicts Christian beliefs. And it sets up, I think, uh, an unavoidable collision between the two. There is no kind of neutral middle ground where we can meet on this one. It's a clash of religious freedom versus identity freedom, we might say. Yeah. And it's going to be hard to reconcile in the future. Do you think one could say that for Christians, it's as awkward as going to a Jewish delicatessen and asking for a, a bacon sandwich? And you know, in, in this case, the person behind the counter will say, we don't serve that kind of food. Yeah. And But I don't know about you, but I kind of identify as a bacon lover. <laughs> Yes. So why is, why is it more complicated than that? Yeah, well, the illustration I use with students, so often the students will say, it's no, why, why just bake the cake, it's not a big deal. And I'll say to students, well, okay, I'm, I'm a Presbyterian, and let's say that I have a newborn baby. Do I have the right to go to the local Baptist pastor and demand, under pain of prosecution, that he provide me with the service of baptism, yeah. which is one of the things that he does as a professional Baptist minister, even though it's against his his conscience. So when I put it in those terms, the students, it makes them sit up and, and take notice. I think what you're up against relative to demanding that a Jewish delicatessen provide you with bacon, as opposed to a baker provide LGBTQ couple with a, with a wedding cake, there's also a matter of cultural taste here. Yeah, You saw that in some of the excerpts you played earlier on, where some were much less happy about the idea of denying the body's authority when it comes to age than they were when it comes to gender. And I think that what we see with the LGBTQ movement is it's a highly organized group. It's been very successful politically. It's presented itself quite often in a very positive way, a lot of positive images to the public, at the same time as, as religion has come to be seen as something that's restrictive, old-fashioned, right. obscurantist. So we could put it this way, that LGBTQ issues, issues of freedom, play to contemporary cultural tastes in a way that often conservative religion of, of all stripes is now regarded as rather distasteful, not least because it collides with the tastes of the sexual revolution. Yeah. 
You also talk about the fact that there are still some sexual identities and behaviors that society does not affirm. Uh, the foot fetishist, you write, surely suffers psychological harm when he is denied the right to proclaim his proclivities in public and receive acclamation and even legal protection for so doing. Yet few, if any, care to take up his cause. Can you help our listeners to understand why this is the case? Why are some identities affirmed while others are not? I think, again, it goes down to a matter of taste and public tolerance. Camille Pallier, in writing about these things, makes the point, you know, these groups have no lobbyists. Hmm. So there's definitely an organized lobby aspect to this. I also think tastes change over time. Yeah. And we've certainly seen over the last 20, 30 years, tastes change dramatically. Uh, we're in a position now where sadomasochism is starting to become more mainstream. We had the Fifty Shades of Grey stuff. Yeah. We're starting to see taste change. So I, I do think that the, the acceptability of uh, libertarian sexual desire can only move at the pace that popular taste moves at. Now, that taste is shifting, and that shift is not itself unconnected to the rise in use of internet pornography. We know that the more, more somebody uses internet pornography, the more likely they are to have a, a more relaxed view of what is and is not sexual behavior. So public tastes are changing, but they're thankfully not quite at a point where everything is accepted at the moment. Who knows? We may get there. It's, it's hard to predict. But uh, certainly there are some things that are still, I would say, regarded as distasteful. Yeah, we just haven't seen a lot of movies yet with the foot fetishist as the main character that we, we want to get behind its support. Maybe maybe that will change. Yeah, we can be thankful for common grace, I think, from that perspective. So in the foreword of your book, which was written by Rod Dreher, there is a quote from Alexander Solzhenitsyn who says, in effect, men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. So you address the issue of cultural amnesia in your subtitle. Is that, in your opinion, what lies at the heart of uh, this amnesia we're dealing with, that we've forgotten God? I think that's a big part of it. I mean, it plays into the history of ideas. Nietzsche is the big person in the 19th century who, you know, in a famous passage in his book, The Gay Science, uh, has this character, the madman, call out polite enlightenment atheists and essentially say, you guys have got rid of God, but you want to keep a basic form of Christian morality. And yeah. you just can't do that. If you get rid of God, you have to start from scratch and do it according to your own desires and will and passions. So there, there is an, an intellectual dimension to this. It also then feeds, I think, into how cultures legitimate authority. An example, Reef talks about three different kinds of worlds, first, second, and third world. Slightly confusing because third world for most people means the, the developing world. Yeah. Reef is using it in a completely different way. First and second worlds legitimate their moral authorities through a reference to something beyond themselves. The first world might be Sparta. So any teenage kid asking mum and dad, why do I have to behave this way, gets told by mum and dad, because the oracle at Delphi gave Lycurgus these rules, and you're not more clever than the oracle at Delphi. She has sacred authority. And Christianity, Judaism, and Islam essentially present sort of more sophisticated forms of that in that, you know, to take the obvious Christian morality, why is murder wrong? Well, because God says it's wrong and God says it's wrong because it contradicts his character and therefore contradicts the character of those who are made in his image yeah. and to reflect that character. The third world that Reef sees that we moved into is one where we don't appeal to anything beyond our own culture to justify our culture. 
And Reef says, you know, what happens then is everything becomes incredibly unstable and volatile. We see this all around us in, in terms of speech codes. Right. Uh, the Amy Barrett Supreme Court hearings. Uh, she used a, a phrase, sexual orientation, and was rebuked because that was a pejorative. In fact, it became a pejorative that day because I believe Merriam-Webster changed it after that to make it a pejorative. Yeah, I remember that story. But we have other examples. Uh, Benedict Cumberbatch gets into trouble for referring to colored people rather than people of color, even though the big organization in the United States that advocates for people of color is the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Speech codes change with taste, change with the view of the crowd, change when the person in power decides they change. Right. The crowd, the person in power, they're answerable to nobody but themselves. And Reef really saw this as a recipe for total chaos, potentially. Uh, we're living in a world where the, go- the moral goalposts are arbitrary and keep changing. Notice what's going on there. The people who accuse Benedict Cumberbatch of, of racism for using that term, they know he's not a racist. Right. He, he may have foolishly said something he shouldn't have done. And who hasn't done that? It's a power play. Mm. It's not really moral discourse. Right. It's a gotcha. Right. It's a way of one group of people being able to thuggishly assert their authority over somebody else. Again, Reef would say that's kind of characteristic of the third world, mm. uh, where really everything lies in the hands of those who have power. And those who don't have power had better keep their eyes on where the goalposts are being moved to, or they're going to be subject to a gotcha at some point. Well, you've been hearing from Carl Truman, host of the Mortification of Spin podcast and author of The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Dr. Truman, thanks for helping us to think through these really important issues. Thanks for having me on. It's been a pleasure. If you'd like more information about the things we discussed on this episode, as always, be sure to check out the show notes where you'll find various articles, book recommendations, as well as other relevant material. You can also find out how to support this podcast by making a one-time gift or by becoming a paid subscriber through Substack. Thanks so much for joining me, and I look forward to being with you again next time as we discuss the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives.